This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where you can start thinking, well, if you've probably already thought about your holidays, but you can start thinking Zupan's for your holidays. And, uh, of course, they've got ordering for Thanksgiving, and they're starting to take orders for Hanukkah as well. Which is very nice. If you've never allowed Zupan's Markets to help with the heavy lifting when it comes to the holiday meal, what are you waiting for? They make it so easy. And they make it delicious too. And not only that, if you go to their you go to the their website, zupans.com, you're going to see recipes as well to help you through. So check out the recipes and then go in and choose your ingredients wisely at Zupans. And I will say this, Chris, because Thanksgiving is literally next week. If you have forgotten to plan out your sides properly, you can just walk into your local Zupans and they'll have many of them ready, just kind of grab and go. Obviously, grab, go, but pay first, uh, but they'll take care of all of those great, delicious sides that you don't want to necessarily prepare on your own. I, yes, I would say you didn't have to just forget about them. You could actually think about them and uh, go take care of things over there. You'll also find commas pears in season, which are, Zupans has, as we've said many times before, there's no better produce department in the land than at Zupans. And- And because tis the season, uh, if you still haven't planned out your holiday party for your business, your friend group, whatever it is, keep in mind, one of Portland and Lake Oswego's hidden gems is at your local Zupans, and we're talking about Seller Z. Right. They can handle it all for you, and uh, they know hospitality at Zupans. Three locations to serve you, Lake Oswego, Burnside, and McAdam, and details always found where? Zupans.com. Right, here it is time once again it's portland's food scene podcast right at the fork with your host chris angeles from portland food adventures and i'm co-host court johnson hello court good after uh, it's afternoon right yeah yeah we usually do this in the morning but we're afternoon today because i made a quick shot up to the new broder in astoria and uh it's nice to have them close by and you know now they're all over the place hood river astoria Southwest Portland at the Scandinavian Center, of course, the original, I believe it was the original over on Clinton, and you know what? I know there's another one around somewhere. Yeah, I had no idea they had expanded that much. Yeah, so Peter Bro has done a masterful job, and the one in Astoria is fast casual, so grab a menu and step aside, because it's delicious, and it's always hard to choose from amongst all the wonderful things there, so... um and then order, and they bring it to you. Very are you, nice. gi- are you giving people proper ordering procedures so that they know to like get out of other people's way? Is that well, what that was? Here's the thing: nobody was there, but I had a menu, and I felt like I was taking too long just yeah. standing there. Right. So I just said, "I'm stepping aside in case somebody else comes in." To I think out. I think that is proper etiquette when you're walking into a place and you're maybe the menu is new to you. If you stand right there in front of everybody, you're kind of blocking. And just get out of the way. Stand back and look at the menu. Right. Well, nobody was there, but I still still felt oh. uncomfortable no. right by the register while they're watching me and I'm trying to figure exactly. out what I want. So no, I, I, just, I think that's still correct. I'm going to step aside here and do this discreetly and yeah. then come back and let you know what I want. And, so you know, smart. their menu is always so hard and they serve 
lunch at breakfast and breakfast at lunch. So you've got two menus to choose from. Right. All right. right. Well, that sounds like we just did a podcast or an ad for Broder. <laughs> for something. And or, that's or, fine. Or protocol on when you're ordering at a fast casual and you've never been there before. That's true, too. Um, but I will say this. When I first started Portland Food Adventures back in 2010 and had this idea, I remember the day after I decided to do it, I asked my son if he wanted to go to Broder. When the check came, I realized, wow, I can deduct this now. <laughs> Every, everything I did was in Portland. Eating was deductible. <laughs> so IRS, there you go. There you go. <laughs> no I've had a couple of deductible meals along the way. There we go. So uh, speaking of Portland food adventures, uh, since that start, it's changed and expanded and gone through you know different incarnations uh of late it's been the international portland food adventures it has i'm gonna hope to get back to portland at some point i'm starting to talk to some people about events again which we did for many years but what we've been doing and doing i'd like to say very well our trips with our chefs like the Folks from Ardenetta, Chef Javier, Javier Conteras, his wife, JL, and Andre, the, the best server in town. We have a podcast with him. He's so good. So mm-hmm. you listen to him. We are returning to uh, Basque Country for our fourth trip, and we have just about four spots remaining. So if someone is thinking about maybe gifts for each other, for a couple, uh, with, for, Wait, pick that up, Court. Yep. Gifts for each other for a couple and also having something to look forward to for, for a few months until April, late April. There's one. We're also planning another one to Andalusia, actually Andalusia, um, in uh, October, which would include Sevilla, Granada, and Malaga. And uh, we're just putting that together now, and that should be ready soon. You're welcome to contact me and say, I'm interested in that. That'll be nine days in southern Spain with the same folks from Urdaneta as well. We also have a trip to Sardinia that is almost full as well with uh, Austrian sign. And um, we'd love to have some great folks. It's a great group going with us we have eight people now we'll take four more and um it is a great holiday gift and that one you can look forward to for months so that's my little portland food adventures promo and one other thing i would like to uh call to uh everyone's attention is this weekend saturday november 18th a really cool holiday market put on by the folks at Steelport. We've had um, we've had them on for on the podcast as well, so you want to listen to that. But Saturday from noon to three at Steelport, which is at 3602 Northeast Sandy Boulevard, um, you will find a market featuring Pal's Books, Steelport Knife Company, and those knives are incredible. And Finex Cast Iron Cookware, which I'm sure most people are familiar with around. They've been around and doing some, providing some great products to not only chefs, but great home cooks. Uh, the joinery, that place is fantastic. The woodworking they do. Uh, Orox Leather, leather. Um, Kachka will be there. Marshall's Hot Sauce. Ken's Artisan Bakery. Freem, Deadstock Coffee. Bull Run, Argyle Winery. 
Quava, and uh, I think I got everybody. Maybe did I mention Orox Leather, which whom I'd never heard of? But I'm going to go and learn something. So uh, I'm going to try to stop by there, do my best. I plan on being in Portland on Saturday, so we're going to do that. Court, you want to stop by? Are you going to be around I'm, uh, this weekend? Yeah, I will be. Yes, I will be this weekend. Let's go, and we'll find some place to go grab some lunch too. Actually, there's going to be food there. Okay. And uh, now we can talk about, uh, actually, this episode, we have uh, one of my favorite people and my favorite events ever in in Oregon were plate and pitchfork events Mm -hmm. that Erica Palmer put on for 20 years and just um, decided to cease with her events. And she's moved into um, a fund to help farmers. And uh, to further the cause of great food and proper eating. And in this episode, we're talking about some of the dollar stores that are popping up, some of, many dollar stores that are popping up in smaller towns in Oregon and across the USA. Um, it's really a vacuum that was uh that was made by Walmart after they started coming in and gobbling up a lot of the market share in the grocery business, but they didn't go into the smaller towns. And now this is what Dollar General has done. And we're, we have a, a very interesting discussion with Erica now about um, what the ramifications are of that, why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing what they're doing and how that's going to affect people um, and their health all over Oregon and all over the country as well. Mm. So um, I've been reading a little bit about that, and I saw Erica post something on Facebook last week, so I asked her if she'd like to come and discuss it. Um, you can also find some YouTube videos. We'll, I'll post a link or two in the show notes, um, or you'll post them. Court, I'll send them to you. Okay. <laughs> I, would you? Wait, let me put it this way. Court, would you be so kind as to post the links if I send them to you? Oh, Chris, I would be so happy to. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for asking. Erica has also provided some links to her uh, her plate and pitchfork fund, and also um, where you can find out more information about saving restaurants too. That has not ended. We're still still dealing with not only the challenges, period, in the food world, but also those that the pandemic. Um, put forth for everybody and um, restaurants are still struggling. So uh, you can learn a lot at Plate and Pitchfork and also through the link we provided in the show notes. Find the show notes um, through whatever platform you used to find this podcast. You'll see them there with links. So Erica is, um, is I think, the most tireless advocate for people in the food world for hunger, farmers, restaurant owners she's she's got um she just doesn't stop i know last year she was in washington um doing a lot of work there to make sure that votes went the the proper way and so uh you'll enjoy her she likes to talk about being a nerd and uh she gets a little nerdy here but no it's not too much for anybody to listen to it's very interesting topic and something we should all be thinking about even if we don't live in smaller towns this stuff is happening all over the place so erica palmer this is it is a tongue twister court it is from the plate and pitchfork 
producer fund, and much more. So here's Erica. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. Okay. All right. Hello, Erica. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Oh, my! It's always my pleasure. Um, I think you are. You're moving right up in the top five of most frequent guests. I think. Ooh, that's just because I'm old. Do you feel very honored? I do. I feel honored. <laughs> I feel old. <laughs> you know, I got my first senior discount. Um, the other day, then it was very useful. It's on my heating fuel. And so I've decided to embrace the senior citizen status. Oh, yeah. I didn't know you could get that. I guess I should try that as well. <laughs> and anybody else should too. So I'll just one quick story because I, I find it amusing. When I had my, I think he was my son, my youngest was, oh, three or four at the time, which would have put me at 36, 37, I guess. I don't know. We went into a bank and we're opening a bank account. And the banker behind the desk said, oh, oh, wait a minute. Are you 55? Because he was looking to get me a discount. And I was like 37 or 38. I literally almost fell out of the chair. And, you know, if I look back at what I look like then, there's no way I look 55. So that person had no clue. He should have been saying, oh, it's too bad you're not 55. And then let it go from there. But anyway. But they didn't. That was my first experience at that age, so I guess I, I'm I'm used to it by now. So and now, yes, we embrace these things. I look for the plus one. It doesn't work on flights. They ask you to click the uh, you know the senior thing, and it does still doesn't give you a discount. So oh well. Anyway, Erica, you still look very young to me, and you've got a young, wonderful, kind spirit. And Thank you. that's what's important. You know, before we start talking about what, what the topic that I think is, uh, that our listeners should think about and hear, hear about if they haven't thought about it already. Um, can we just address, do you mind us how you feel about the closing of plate and pitchfork after so many years? You know, I've always been a huge proponent and lover of what you did. And I always told anybody if they move to Oregon, that's the, um, that is 
something that is absolutely necessary to be an Oregon resident to experience a plate and pitchfork. So they're no more. You ended them. Very sorry to hear just a little bit if we can hear from you about that. Uh, it was a tough decision at times and an easy decision at others. Um, you know, plate and pitchfork had dinners on farms for 20 years and mm. I think we did a lot of really great work and introduced people to the people and places that grow and raise their food. And it, in many ways, it was a success. And in many ways, it also wasn't. Um, so I think of this next chapter of Plate and Pitchfork as an evolution, because I didn't start the farm dinners to just have beautiful dinners in the middle of a field. They had a mission. And the mission was to change our food supply chain, to increase the consumption of local products, to support farms. And while there have been blips where we've seen increases of, of local purchasing and we've definitely seen it become a more popular thing to talk about, in the long run, we're not saving farms, we're still losing them. And so to continue to have the dinners when it, it wasn't actually making sense and uh, meeting the mission didn't make sense to me. And it's also a heck of a lot of work. And with the way finances are, it's not financially viable to keep doing those sorts of dinners and even make ends meet, um, which we can talk about in the broader scheme of how hard it is to operate a restaurant these days. So while the farm dinners are gone, Plate and Pitchfork is still here. Plate and Pitchfork has evolved to be the Plate and Pitchfork Producer Fund. And I'm uh, through creative ways trying to raise capital to continue supporting small farms. Uh, there are so many farms that are in need of small dollar grants to do things like upgrade irrigation, and that will allow them to create more food that, for their communities. And those aren't programs that banks or big grantors like the USDA are interested in. And so there's no way for these farms to improve their operations to continue to feed us. And it's one of the many backwards ways that we look at small farms. And I'm hoping that Plate and Pitchfork as the producer fund can work to solve that problem. So the end of farm dinners, but not the end of the work. Right. And you, as you said, part of those farm dinners was uh, having wonderful chefs in the field and, and wineries and so forth. But you know, one of the things uh, that came about three or four years ago was the pandemic, and you were instrumental in helping save restaurants, too. So we go from farmers to restaurants, and you've um, now you're now we're going to talk today about saving communities, too, and saving farms in the process, hopefully. Um, but yeah, no, it's um, I've always thought. You make me feel very small because you're so uh, you're such an advocate for so many, and I feel like I I should have been advocating more. But I feel anyway. Forget about it's what I feel. It's never too like. late. It's never I'm, too late to I become an advocate. <laughs> I know, but you are you are the consummate advocate, and I think anybody in our Portland food world, or the Oregon food world, or the food world in general, would agree that uh, you've done more for lots of people than uh, than you. anybody. So, hey, I have uh, not done it alone. I have good people around me at all times. Well, that's true. And then the other thing about, I'm sure that was one of the factors with plate and pitchfork because I'm finding it, is that uh, chefs, restaurateurs were finding it difficult to staff. So for them to agree to do a meal with you on August 20th was not always the easiest thing. It wasn't as easy as it was years ago. No, I mean, they all want to, which is really a blessing. Um, And it's very rare that I 
call somebody and they say, no, I don't want to, it's, it becomes more of a, can I, uh, I think one of the bigger issues is that you saw, you know, when I started doing plate and pitchfork at dinner cost $75. And when we ended, they were close to $200. And that's not because I'm profiting off of them. In fact, I didn't profit off of them at all. Um, and, but the costs of operating a restaurant or a catering company or an event business have just gone absolutely through the roof. And when your only revenue source is those tickets, then the guest bears the burden of that. And that's just a little much. Yeah. Well, it's one thing when it's $200 and it's another thing when it's four, right? When you have two yeah. people, it's a different decision at that yeah. point. But anyway, let's not, that's, um, I guess. Yeah, that's your plate and pitchfork update. <laughs> yes. Thanks for the plate and pitchfork update. I saw you wrote a, um, an advocacy piece about the perils of Dollar General. And that's why I contacted you to see if you wouldn't mind uh, talking about those sorts of things. Because I think that I'm guessing that a lot of people in Portland proper may not be aware of this, but, you know, I live out on the coast and I've seen Dollar Generals uh, pop up in Rockaway and I think in Seaside too. And if you walk, drive down the coast, even in places like Yahats. Um, and, you know, you can talk to, I think you can t speak better to how they're affecting our communities, but, um, you know, we only have so many grocery stores out here to support the local community and local communities, the people who live here and the people obviously who travel here for vacations. And um, those can get in the way of their livelihoods, too. And those people, the I don't want to uh, go into too much. I'll go to it in very broad spokes here, but strokes. But the local grocers support local farmers and they support local manufacturers and they they're local themselves. They hire locally. Um, so that's a little bit of a problem. But why don't you speak to what's going on and what we should be thinking about and perhaps move on to doing? I do mind if I sort of take us a step up and tell you a little bit of a, a, a story, a little history on how this has all come to be. Ab I absolutely don't mind at all. Please. Okay. So I think although everybody in your listenership may not have been in a Dollar General, they probably know about Walmart. And this all sort of comes back to Walmart. So in 1988, if we time travel, because we're old, we remember that year, um, Walmart entered the grocery market and they opened their very first super center, which took all the stuff that Walmart usually sold, clothes, household appliances, all that sort of stuff. And they added a full service supermarket as well. And they discovered that that was a really great model for them. And so they built thousands of those stores in metro areas and rural areas all over the country. And in doing so, it pushed other retails out of business because they did two things. They sell key products or an entire product category at a loss at each of their new locations until the nearby retailer who carried those same products couldn't finance the losses at their business and went out of business. And Walmart uses their buying power to coerce their suppliers into giving them super, super deep discounts while charging other retailers higher prices. The legal term for that is called price discrimination, but I just think of it as horrible predatory business practices. But there was nobody minding the ship um, and it allowed Walmart to strip neighborhoods of their grocery stores. And that set the stage for Dollar General and Family Dollar to move in. 
all of these chains are like an invasive species. And I know you're giving me this look right now. That's like, but wait, 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 wait. Like, isn't, aren't there, right. anti, aren't there, aren't there, aren't there antitrust laws that should stop this? Right. And okay. Yes, well, get, I was giving you my antitrust look. Yes. I forgot what that what look looked you, like. There was but. this look of like, wait, how does that happen? Right. Um, so there should be antitrust laws. There are these things called the Robinson Pateman Act. That's really, really old. And the fed should be minding the ship, but they're not. Um, there were a bunch of regulatory changes that, sort of created this loophole. And so Walmart saw an opportunity and they ran with it. And by 2005, so they started this in 88. By 2005, they became the largest grocer in the country. And in, today, in the world too, right? Don't, aren't they open all over the world? I don't know what their world stat is. I, I'm only good at quoting U.S. stats. And okay. one in every $4 that an American spends on groceries goes to mm. Walmart. And what is that number in Oregon? It can't be that high. Well, I don't, you don't have to know. I don't, I don't need, know Oregon but what's numbers, your guess? but uh, I, you know, I don't have a guess on that okay. one. Um, but here's, here's where the whole story gets worse. So Walmart moves into regions. They box out the local smaller grocers and smaller stores, even if they're not grocers by doing all of this price cutting. And so it decimates a community and then the big guys, the big grocers like Walmart and Albertsons and Kroger don't necessarily want to fill all the gaps. They only want to fill the neighborhoods that they essentially redline like banks, the more affluent neighborhoods with groceries. So then you end up with communities that are pretty much desperate and, and somewhat vulnerable and in walks Dollar General and is like, hey, we got a store for you and we carry some food and we carry some this and we carry some that. And so we're going to help you out and add that with all of the closures of independent businesses that we saw in 2020 restaurants, mm -hmm. independent markets, all of those things in 2021, nearly half of the new stores that opened in the U S were chain dollar stores. Wow. And at the start of 2022, Dollar General and Dollar Tree, which also owns Family Dollar, all the dollar names, um, they operated more than 34,000 stores in the U.S. That's more than McDonald's, Starbucks, Target, and Walmart combined. Uh, you, you, would, you could win bar bets with that. <laughs> <laughs> and crazily enough, they're like, they're still growing. And so... Dollar General and Dollar Tree are like, they were supposed to open 1700 stores this year. I don't know if they have, but they are planning to add 51,000 more stores to the US. No, that's impossible. 51,000? That's, yeah. that's, forget about the size of states, but that's, uh, you know, that's a thousand per state. That's, that seems crazy. It does seem crazy. And so they go into places where there aren't grocers or maybe they perceive um, an economy in distress. So rural communities, uh, lower end communities, uh, black and Latinx communities are targeted. And in some towns, like they did this in Georgia and in Tulsa, they'll put dollar generals on either side of the town. They'll catch you coming and going. And they become the only place 
for you to get groceries because they've chased out the other grocers and then they don't carry a lot of fresh food or fresh uh, fresh vegetables or fresh fruits or fresh meats and you end up having a store full of highly processed foods and if you've got folks that don't have the capacity to travel long distances you're creating this you can't call it a food desert but it, it's 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 nightmare where the only food products are highly processed and you negatively impact the health outcomes of that community. So this is, you know, it's not a once upon a time fairy tale. It's sort of a once upon a time horror story where the big bad wolf is going into all of these rural communities and continuing to grow and grow and grow. And they're harming people. And yeah, I don't... I don't and think that, we think like we, we see a Dollar Tree and we're like, oh, I'll go grab a cheap pack of hangers. Right. We don't realize like what they're actually doing. Like they are an invasive species and they don't go to places that are economically disadvantaged. They're causing the economic damage. Well, they're they're making it, economic uh, challenges worse. Right. Because they already are tough, especially in the small communities. They can't even you can't house people to work in any store, whether it be Dollar General or anywhere else. So those but but when you say they got you coming and going on both sides, those are those are McDonald's and Starbucks uh, strategies. Tactics. Yep. And and uh, and all, when you think like a Starbucks is one thing, a few cups of coffee, but to have a gigantic footprint on either side of the town that sells everything to everybody um, at the consequence of smaller businesses that maybe were there when they moved in or just can't ever open. They can't even think of opening new ones based on yeah. that. That's scary. I mean, grocery stores are important anchors. I mean, you know, independent markets in, in particular are really important anchors in communities. And, you know, not only are they, um, they're, you know, they're providing good quality products. They're providing a wide array of products. And Dollar General doesn't provide the full array of products that your grocery does. And you also tend to have relationships. As you mentioned, maybe, maybe that grocery is um, selling locally grown products. Um, but you know the people that are there. And I guarantee that the CEO of your local independent grocery isn't making 985 times more than their employees. And that's the model with Dollar General. Mm. The CEO is making 985 times more than their employees. Wow. That would amount, that would amount to over $50,000 a year, Erica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like sixteen million or something like that. Yeah, some crazy number, and they don't give a shit about anybody, really. So it's no. all the bottom line. So you know, and it's not only food, but this is what we're here to talk about. But think about—I'm thinking about here on out here on the coast where this opened in Rockaway, and all the cute little shops that sell anything to go on the beach or anything for tourists—they're going to struggle because you can go in and get that something for less probably way shittier quality than they're selling but it fills the bill for a for a three-day stay to buy a, a you know a board to go on the water so um, well and dollar general does this other thing that um so folks think that they're getting a good deal when they go into dollar general oh it's going to be inexpensive so i'm going to buy you know cheerios or a knockoff cheerios while 
well, it's to feed the kids while I'm visiting the coast, right? Mm -hmm. And you look at the box and you're like, oh, this is so much less expensive than my grocery store. Well, it's because the quantity in the box is actually smaller. Mm -hmm. So they have their suppliers make smaller quantities. So as a consumer, you're actually paying more per ounce than you would would be otherwise. So there's, there, again, it's kind of the coming and going and the predatory nature of just this, this behemoth that frankly doesn't belong in Oregon and certainly doesn't belong in our rural communities. And it's it, in Oregon, Dollar General is targeting rural towns. And many of those towns are already struggling from the effect of corporate consolidation. And we can talk about that in a greater food supply way if you'd like, if you want to get super nerdy with me. I don't mind. <laughs> let's get let's get nerdy. We got some time to get nerdy. So Do we? Go, yeah, go ahead. It's it's fine. Go ahead. We're having this conversation. Let's get deep. Okay. So I just am gonna completely nerd out here. Um this you know. The, the geek in me loves this. So I hate that our food system is in crisis. And what I love is being able to break it down and tell you why, right? And because if we know the why, we should be able to fix it. Um, and so just like Dollar General has taken over all of these communities, our whole food system is in crisis because there are four companies that control the global supply of seeds. There are four dominant companies that uh, are responsible for meat processing, um, whether that's beef or chicken or pork, they're four dominant companies. And then there are four large grocers. So this consolidation and aggregation that was supposed to, according to somebody's theory, actually help the consumer has actually harmed our consumers. And the way it harms our rural communities even more is because we've got a lot of incredible producers in Oregon. And where are our ranches gonna go get their meat processed? Right? They're getting boxed out by these big guys. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally know some restaurateurs who have to go, you know, don't necessarily go in state, they go out of state. To That's where they're processed now. Um, you know, it may be, there may, may be a uh, product that are animals that are raised in Oregon, but they're not all processed here. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't have very many processors anymore. And when you've got the key links throughout this food chain from seed to processing to retail, can, controlled by just a few, like it becomes, it comes at the expense of devastation for both the environment and our farming communities. Right. And and most critically, it comes at the expense of the hardworking, passionate, and really incredibly talented people who make sure that food moves from the fields to our tables. Mm -hmm. See, it all comes back to plate and pitchfork. Right. So let's start that up again, just because <laughs> it's necessary. Um, so um, what is, is this a runaway train? No. Um, I mean, it... It isn't a runaway train, but it's a really, you know, if we go, it is an invasive species. In order to get rid of an invasive species, we all have to say, hey, that's the invasive thing and we don't want it. We don't want that thing growing here anymore. And there are a number of ways that we tackle that invasive species. One is to not shop there. Like maybe that Walmart or Dollar General is super convenient to you. Maybe 
maybe you're really, really strapped for cash and it's your only option. And I can't tell you, you know, if it's your only option not to buy, but know that when you are buying from them, you're feeding the beast. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's tempting when you think that prices are lower, right? I'm just getting, I've done that. You mentioned it before. Yeah. I've passed the dollar general and I just need some cereal for tomorrow morning. I'll just jump in there really quickly. It's going to be cheap. And, and then, you know, I have to say my experience, and I, listen, I've been, I've probably passed this one down here a hundred times. I've been in twice, I think once or twice, once because I didn't know anything about them and I thought it might be cheaper twice because I started reading about them and watching YouTube videos about them. And I wanted to just go in and experience it a little more. Uh, so, but I would, bet the average Portlander, I don't know how, if they're prolific around Portland, I don't know. But well, Walmarts the, are. Well, that we know, and that we know that people have been fighting it, how they've been fighting it, and how they feel about it, especially in a community like Portland, um, you know, who's, I believe, has been shutting some down, correct? I know that some Walmarts I know one or two have changed, yeah. yeah. I mean, so I think, they've been successful in some I mean, way. I think as a consumer... You need, everyone needs to stop and think, who am I giving my money to right now? And do I want them to have my hard earned dollars? And maybe it's not as convenient. Um, Maybe I really want that instant gratification, but maybe if I stop to think for a minute, just like, you know, you you want the instant gratification of grabbing that candy bar or whatever it is that you're craving, but you know, you're gonna feel like crap later after you eat it. That's the story of my life. But yes, I know that. Right. So you know, we know how to stop and think like, how is this going to make me feel when I put it in my belly? Mm -hmm. We need to stop and have the same conversation. How am I going to feel when I put that in my shopping cart? How am I going to feel when I walk out of the store? Um, How am I, you know, am I going to feel good about my purchase because I just bought from um, my favorite rancher and I know that I'm helping them survive and I know that they're providing me with a beautiful cut of meat that I can put on my dining table and and be proud to be happy with? Um, Or am I just going to go buy the McDonald's hamburger? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, yeah, and sometimes it's easier, and it's it's te- you, as you said, it's tempting. Let's uh, speaking of the McDonald's hamburger, and luckily, yeah. I want to take a break here for to talk a little bit about Ringside Steakhouse, our sponsor. Thankfully, locally in town for since 1944. So let's take a moment and uh, break for that, and then come back and continue and continue this conversation with Erica Palmer. We are pausing just a moment, Chris, to talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Yeah, it's fantastic. And as the holidays approach, I think one of the best ideas is to save... I I know there are a lot of people out there who love to... prepare a beautiful, bountiful meal for their family and loved ones for the holidays, both Thanksgiving and Christmas, but so does Ringside, and they've already prepared that for you. So if you'd like to nix all the effort and time that goes into preparing a meal and get 
the quality of a holiday meal that Ringside can produce for you, it's all there at the click of your mouse or your finger on your phone. When you go to uh, ringsidesteakhouse.com, you can look into their Thanksgiving family turkey dinner for six. Yeah, I'm looking at this uh, roasted split bone in turkey breast, which uh, comes with the cranberry sauce and the gravy. That's delicious. And the artisan bread stuffing. Oh, you wanted to go back and forth, Court. It's a that's what sure. Wait, I wait. got the cue after doing this for ten years. <laughs> I got your cue. No, the artisan bread stuffing with sage and onion. You've also got whipped russet potatoes, and even if if you're a big fan of carrots and herbs, you can get that as well. Oh, you took two of them. So I'm going to go with the pumpkin pie, courtesy of Willamette Valley Pie Company. So um, they went to the pie experts for that uh, for the dessert. And I would say, listen, here, it's a great idea. You don't even have to think. I know when you go to the grocery store and you're preparing a meal for lots of people, you know, you have to buy it, prep it, spend all the time. And you may not have the time to do that. And you may not want to spend all the money necessary for the quantity of ingredients you don't need. Mm-hmm. This is this is no fuss, no muss. Pick it up, warm it the day of. And we've done this before, Court. Warm it the day of. And um, it's, a, it's a great idea. By just going to the website, you click, they'll come back to you with a time when you pick it up, and it's all there. And Thanksgiving dinner aside... It is the holiday season in general, and why not take your family to a great uh, Portland institution this holiday season and just stop by Ringside itself and have a great meal there? Yeah. And by the way, I'll note that if you don't do this for Thanksgiving, you can do it for Christmas also. You can plan that as well. And if you can't do that, then you can really have uh, a great Christmas and give your loved ones or your family some Ringside Steakhouse gift cards for them to use at any time down the road. We are covering all the bases. You can get all the information about the uh, Thanksgiving dinner, upcoming meals, the gift cards, and all the hours to uh, visit at ringsidesteakhouse.com. All right. We're here with Erica Palmer of the, is it now the Plate and Pitchfork Fund? Do we, the what Plate and Pitchfork, yeah, the Plate and Pitchfork Producer Fund, PPPF. EPPF. All right. Well, cool. So let's continue the, I think you were starting down the track on, obviously you don't have to patronize these businesses if, uh, if you understand the consequences of that. And probably there's yeah. some other things that can be done too. Well, I mean, I understand. I also want to just acknowledge that saying don't patronize them comes from a great place of privilege. And this is one of those places where those of us that can afford to shop elsewhere must. And we have to acknowledge that there are people who have no other choice but to shop at a Dollar General. Um, And we should do whatever we can to lift our community up. And so, you know, that that can come in in many different ways. I'm going to start with the biggest and broadest is politically, um, you know, having an unstable food system, which is what we have, you know, this food system in crisis is is an issue of national security. Um, And I know that probably sounds really big and lofty, but with very few companies in the lead, the the supply chain that we rely on to eat daily, it's incredibly vulnerable to disruption by health and environmental disasters. Um, A problem is in a single location can ripple across the nation and local and regional food supplies can be 
more nimble and resilient in the face of adversity, but small businesses struggle to compete. So let me make that really simple or more simple. Um, when COVID hit, meat processing plants were one of the first things to close. And so you started not being able to see products. You didn't see products on, on store shelves. Um, we, if we were buying from local folks who were processing direct, you know, if you were buying direct to consumer, you could still get those cuts of meat. Um, when we saw the Ukraine war start, we saw wheat prices go through the roof. And those wheat prices were impacted because Ukraine is a large producer. Um, but then that too, the commodity market affects the prices for local growers as well. So having an awareness that we need, if we bolster our local supply chains, we can actually create a more resilient economy uh, is something that we all need to focus on. And again, I know that's like a really big lofty thing to say, but there are a couple of ways to focus on it. And one is calling your congressperson every day. Um, 202-224-3121. And I'm going to say that number again. 202-224-3121. Farmers and ranchers are a small subset of the population of the U.S. There are far more eaters and diners than there are farmers and ranchers and fishermen. It is incumbent upon every single eater to use our voice to support the people that are growing and making our food. And I know some folks are like, oh my God, I could never call. You can call at night, you'll go straight to voicemail. You can call on the weekend, you'll go straight to voicemail. You don't have to be, have a big soliloquy prepared. If there's an issue out there that you are focused on in the moment, you can talk about that issue and why it's important to you. Or you can simply call and say, hi, I'm really concerned about the security of our food systems and I want you to do everything in your power to support family farms in Oregon. It's that simple. And that would take the time it takes to scroll through about four posts in Facebook to just Probably look at less. it and waste your time. Right. Well, I'm just, just scroll through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. If you put that number in your phone, you know, you can be um, in the carpool line, you know, getting ready to pick up your kids at school and, you know, you, you got a minute dial. Uh, if you can be, you know, maybe, maybe you're standing in a grocery store line dial. Um, maybe you're taking the dog for a walk dial or or you can take the opportunity anytime you feel pissed off about anything just take that energy and throw it into the phone and just say what you you know use those words with passion that uh, yeah. i'm concerned about the food system put put the energy there i think that and might you know be idea. you can absolutely do that and i will remind everyone if you do talk to a human please be kind a lot of the times the folks that are answering the office, the congressional office phones or interns, um, you know, they're doing their best. Every single call, every email is counted. Um, so your voice really does matter and it makes an impact. And here in Oregon, we have a champion of the food system. And you're probably tired of me saying this too. The patron saint of restaurants, Congressman Earl Blumenauer, led the charge to save independent restaurants and bars at the peak of the pandemic. And he has a vision for a farm bill that is truly a food bill uh, that would shift money away from these big conglomerates to the small farms that we have in Oregon and, and do a better job of supporting them. So, you know, we can do things like call Congressman Blumenauer and say, thank you. 
And if he's not your congressman, you can call your congressman and say, please follow Congressman Blumenauer's lead and let's get a farm bill that's actually a food bill. I mean, our, our farm bill needs, it needs to, we need to take a new look at the way we look at agricultural investments. We have this old system that is just helping the big get bigger and it's feeding that globalization effort. And we need to think about promoting climate-friendly agriculture. We need to think about what resources are accessible to help smaller scale producers that pr produce a wide range of products instead of the one farm that's just creating this massive supply of one product. Um, we need to think about whether we're working to remedy past and current injustices that stripped black, indigenous, and other communities of color of land and wealth. Um, we need to think about whether we're spending specific dollars in ways that are going to make healthy food more affordable and widely accessible. You know, we don't think about the farm bill being the thing that funds farmers markets and the SNAP program, but it does. And, and so this is wealth inequality, a subset and a large subset of wealth inequality. And it's something, you know, we can be frustrated by that and vote on election day and, uh, do those sorts of things, but I suppose this is something that you can do to affect that subset of wealth inequality that, you know, is on your table every day. I mean, we eat, some of us eat a couple of times a day, some of us eat 30 times a day, but, um, you know, this is something that affects you on a daily basis and has, uh, has, is a large driver of our economy. You know, I, I don't remember what it was, but I was just watching something recently that kind of uh, made me realize, well, that's a little interesting. I hadn't thought about that. In the 1800s, agriculture was the driver of our economy. Farmers. Uh -huh. That's what people did. That's, you know, that's what they could do is grow food for themselves and for others. And that's, it's no longer farmers. I mean, how, what percentage? I don't know. A small percentage of our population is are farmers now, and they need you know they need help. Three percent, three percent, and I don't know what that number was in the eighteen hundreds, but it was like around fifty, you know, in the early eighteen hundreds, I believe, if I recall. So um, yeah, I mean, once upon a time, we all knew where our food came from because if we weren't growing it ourselves, it was our uncle or our grandparents or our neighbor. Right? And we don't have those connections to food anymore. And so um, we've, we've lost the story that comes with how your food has come out of the field and made it to your table. And the, the knowledge that is, let me start that sentence over again. It's um, when you knew how things were happening, you valued them. When you saw how hard your grandpa, your aunt, your uncle, your neighbor worked to bring something to the table, you held it with high regard and reverence. Um, there was a story about how that steak made it to your table or how that beautiful onion became a part of a, a recipe. And with the globalization and consolidation and mass production of food, we've accepted them as a convenience. Hey, we can always go to the store and get a tomato, even though the tomato is not in season. The tomato that's not in season doesn't taste nearly as good as the tomato that you can pick out of your backyard in August in Oregon. And shifting our mindset to value food and everything that's gone into it, 
would change the face of our communities from the farm all the way to your plate or the restaurant kitchen that's serving you food. You know, you should not be able to go get Arby's five for five. Like it's ridiculous that you're getting five are you sandwiches. Saying, are you saying that to me? Specific, just directing that? No, to me? no, I'm not. I didn't know you were an Arby's <laughs> fan. Um, one, one should not be able to get five <laughs> sandwiches for five dollars. There's someone along the supply chain who's paying for that. Who's paying for that? Is it labor? Probably, right? Like when you, if you think about the way a restaurant operates. So restaurants have a number of expenses, right? You've got to pay your rent. You've got to pay your utilities. You've got to pay your supply costs. You've got to pay your producers and you've got to pay your staff. All of those inputs have gone up. The only one a restaurateur really has control of is labor. So when you're getting that cheap sandwich, you're harming somebody. Well, also, they don't even have control of labor anymore. They can't get labor. They can't find labor. You can't find I, labor because you're not paying them well. Right, exactly. That's, and that's, I guess, yeah, that's the, the end result of that. Because Yeah, I mean, think about who I had a conversation with somebody this morning with my, in my other life because I'm with the Independent Restaurant Coalition. I was talking to four people who are researching some things in the industry. And one of them very wisely said, I think about who is doing well in this supply chain. Who's profiting? Because restaurateurs have a tiny profit margin. And I'll tell you right now, they're not making it. And we continue to see massive closures. Mm -hmm. But who's getting rich? Credit card processors, distributors, third-party delivery apps. Like who's making the money? on the backs of the labor that's going into every aspect of your food supply. Yeah. And the credit card processors are just killing it mm -hmm. all the time. So on everything, um, yeah. have you seen that? Uh, it's just not a meme, but I saw it as a meme that what happens when you uh, take a, your bill at the end of a dining experience. And if you pay cash, what happens with that cash versus when you all the everything all that all yeah the i mean if you think about circulate it through the economy just go to a bank instead with a credit card yeah when you're swiping a credit card somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 25 percent right off the top of your bill is going away and it's not going to the restaurant um it's it's ridiculous um how do you get 12 to 25 percent it depends on your processor and how many oh. fees are along the way, right? So if you're swiping a card, it's going through like the Square terminal. So Square is taking a cut and then it's a Visa and then Visa is taking a cut. Right, and, you know, right, It just right. keeps going and going and going. Um, and then you're yeah. paying, if you don't pay your bill immediately, you're paying them. Uh, yeah, you're paying them 27% nowadays um, on that too. Yeah. And, you know, if you pay cash, um, you know, it's, it's staying in, in the restaurant. And if you follow that chain, I think it's probably the meme that you're referencing. If you, if you spent $50 at a restaurant on cash, then that $50 actually goes back into the economy as $50. If you spend $50 on your credit card, then it actually goes to the next step as, you know, $42. Right. And so that just diminishes 
and creates this economic spiral. And so, you know, there is uh, currently right now a bill in the Senate called the Credit Card Competition Act that would create more competition in that marketplace. Visa and MasterCard own 82% of the credit card market. Um, you know, the, you've got the Amexes and Discovers and other processors out there that just have this small fraction of it because of the way the market is set up. Uh, retailers, restaurateurs don't have a choice, really. They just get funneled into Visa or MasterCard. And so then they're paying these ridiculously high processing fees. You want to hear a crazy number that I just read? So yeah. you're saying that Visa and MasterCard have the lion's share and American Express is smaller. Well, 3% of our GDP is swiped on a Delta American Express card. 3% of our GDP wow. goes through Delta American Express so people can get miles and sit in a shitty lounge. So uh, I wonder how, what the, what percent of our GDP is going to Visa and MasterCard. Yeah, well, it's got to be higher, I would imagine, right? Or there's so many people who are passionate about those miles and just got slammed, by the way, by Delta, who changed all the rules for the coming years. Um, but yeah, that's it's crazy to think about those kind of numbers, and they they're, they don't do anything for it. They're just they're it's just kind of it, well, I'm not going to say it because who knows? Someone could be working for them and say this guy is speaking negatively about you. I don't want to deal with that from a bank. But well, here's um, here's what I'll I'll take the run. I have no problem being the bad guy, and I already have targets on my back. It's fine. Um, big business is getting bigger. Whether we're talking about meat processors, seed aggregators, banks, you name it. They're all getting bigger. And CEOs are getting fatter. Yeah. Meanwhile, we have folks who are struggling under the weight of their rental expenses, their utility bills. We've got student loan payments. We we talk for another hour about healthcare in this country. Mm -hmm. And it makes us all feel powerless. And if there's one thing I can do in this role of advocate that I've um, unexpectedly, did this was not this was not on the career path. Um, this was never no, a mission. No, but it's your passion, you know. And I'm gonna I'm gonna credit your parents because I, <laughs> I think about why you do what you do, and then I think, well, well, my parents weren't. I don't think my parents were like your parents and they didn't instill the same passion and uh, altruistic um, characteristics in me that you have. So we'll we'll have to save that clip and send it directly to my folks. Um, Happy happy to, I'm happy to, uh, to even write them and tell them how wonderful you are. Oh, thank you. Um, Here's the thing. It all seems insurmountable. We all sit here and are like, how how the hell can I change this, Erica? It's the federal government. It's the way it's been forever. It's the this, it's the that, it's the other thing. And there's so many ways. The, the first is just don't be afraid to try. Like if, if the only thing you feel up to doing is maybe making a phone call once a month, make the phone call. If, if the thing you feel good about doing is saying, I'm never going to buy from Amazon again, or I'm going to take a, a five month break from buying this product from a place that's super convenient. And I'm going to instead take that money and I'm going to spend it on someone that I can meet at the farmer's market. Do that. Just do something. Mm 
Can I give you a little example of that firsthand? Yeah. It's a really good one. When I was in college, I was a smoker and I decided to take all of my cigarette budget. I'm going to quit and I'm going to spend it on photography. Well, back then, photography was a very different deal. I had to buy film and get it developed. Yeah. But I don't smoke anymore. I don't smoke anymore. And I think I'm a pretty damn good photographer. As a result of that, now, that is not the same thing. I'm not affecting the economy, but you can make those steps. And, oh, and but you did, Chris. You took money out of the hands of Big Tobacco. Well, that, yeah. Well, I didn't see that right off the bat, but yes, I, I did. I took that out and, um, you improved you know, your health. And I immediately put it right into Kodak. Um, not my dog, but you know, which was big, but still not tobacco, I guess. Not so, tobacco. You improved your health. You improved the health of your economy, not by, you know, blowing smoke and secondhand smoke was awful. Like that's, right. that's a great example. Right. So everybody can be an advocate. Everybody has to be an advocate if we're going to change. And there's no right or wrong way to be an advocate. Just start doing the thing that you want to see happen in the world. We talk a lot about being kind. So make time in your day to prioritize being kind to somebody else. Call Congress, shop local, join the Independent Restaurant Coalition, donate to the Plate and Pitchfork Fund, go to your favorite restaurant on a regular basis. Don't let it be a special occasion thing. Every single one of your actions as a member of a society impacts somebody else. So do it thoughtfully and you'll make a difference. Or don't do it thoughtfully. That's the easiest is I'm not going to shop there. That That's the easiest thing to do. That um, Unless you're, of course, you can't get something any you know anywhere else. But uh, that's, to me, is the first step. And, um, you know, you see those. We have an interesting thing in Manzanita, I think, that we have one grocery store that's owned by people who are who I've heard are Republicans and another one that's owned by Democrats. And uh, that's a choice too. supporting. But on the other hand, you know, here's one thing I've I, I would love you to speak to this because you're obviously very politically oriented. Some of my favorite people in the world are Republicans before Trumpism. Then we used to just have uh, healthy arguments and just say, okay, well, you look at it this way. I look at it that way. Still do. But um, I think that's one thing we need to do a little more of is be talking and figure out solutions. It seems like in Congress that's never going to happen. But we need to kind of talk, speak with each other and be neighbors, I think. so. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I live in a rural community and you know, the, the Democrats are certainly in, in the minority, but it doesn't really matter because when you live in a small community, you have to work together or you're not going to survive. Mm-hmm. And when you strip away politics, when I, when I don't put a label on somebody and you have a conversation and you say, what do you want for your kids? What, what kind of life do you want them to have? What, what kind of care do you want your aging parents to have? How do you want to feel every day walking out the front door of your house and going into the community? What you'll find is that everybody wants the same things. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants healthy kids, health care, good food, safe communities. We get hung up on rhetoric, and that is manufactured by our current political machine. And, and our media. All, and all of the media, and, you know, not just traditional media, social media, the, the way social media has been co-opted to spread 
you know, disinformation. We don't have fact checking, like bring back Walter Cronkite and things might be, be a little different. Right. Oh, that's a but little we tough. Have- the latest thing is, have you seen this? The AI that's taking actual people like yes. uh, celebrities or whomever it might be po- politicians and putting new words in their mouths and making it sound like them and putting them out there as videos. That is the yeah. scariest thing I've ever heard. I've ever well, seen. I, and your voice is out there quite frequently. Your voice will be really easy to replicate, and, and the same thing will don't happen. Don't give anybody any ideas. And so we need to be, again, thoughtful, <laughs> discerning consumers. Like, unfortunately, the weight of all of this change falls on our shoulders. Yeah. and and But it's a little frustrating because you touched on it a minute ago. It's, it's uh, easy to fall in the trap, and I do of saying, you know, it is what it is. What can I do about this? I mean, even if I try, all the bullshit still happening in Washington, they can't even agree on how to fund the government. Um, you know, it's tough. But there are a lot of things going on outside of that that are, I guess are changeable and are actionable and that you don't have to be necessarily marching with a sign on Main Street. Um, but there are other things you can do. Think about it this way. I know that you like Hell's Canyon. Yeah. You love the canyon, bit, right? A little bit. Yeah, and you I love, love the canyon. Where, I, yes. So think about Hell's Canyon. Think about Grand Canyon. Think about any of those places and think about how those canyons became so vast and impressive because of water. Little tiny drops of water moving together over and over and over and over again will wear down great surfaces. So Mm. you don't have to carry the sign. You don't have to scream. You don't have to make a big production of something. You don't have to be a millionaire. It goes back to that. Be the one drop. Be the little speck, but be consistent. Keep flowing. Flow a little bit. (laughs) And you'll gather well, that, people with you. That's a very good way of looking at it because I'm always thinking about how many, how many millions of years or billions it took to make those canyons or just smooth these rocks, make this sand. It's, it's just absolutely nuts or actually, you know, for humans to evolve. Well, Same think about thing. our political situation. It didn't happen overnight either, right? It was a small group of people that started doing something that they wanted Mm-hmm. And the rest of us were snoozing. And so now we're catching up. Right? And yeah. so we we have to be alert. We have to pay attention to our surroundings. And we have to be willing to jump in and say, nope, the tide's going that direction. But I don't like it. And I'm just going to stand here until the tide has to turn. So are you optimistic about farms, about local communities and restaurants to start there? I have hope. And if I give up hope, there's no point in being. Mm. So I think we have a hell of a lot of work to do. I think that independent restaurants and bars across the country are really struggling, but they are just like the farmers that and ranchers and fishermen that supply them with food. They are some of the most passionate, talented, resourceful people on the planet. And I think... Uh, if we were to follow the lead of small business people in this country, we would be a better place. And so I, there's, I would be lying if I said there aren't days where I'm just like, why the hell? Like, I just want to crawl into bed and hide under blankets and give up. But I, 
there's there's too much at stake and there's too much good out there that needs to be elevated and that's what you know that's what keeps me going you know it's just like the water through the canyons if you uh one of the things because i didn't pay attention in school much but as i travel now and i uh you know i'm a little older and i have a little more time to investigate a few things i realized that we've that throughout history not only in the United States, but all over the world, there, there has been much worse strife and many worse dictators than that which we're experiencing right now. And people overcame them and things changed. So you don't have to think, you know, I hear all the time that the world is a crazy place. I mean, look back, you know, look back. You're, you're, I think you're too young for this, but all in the family. Michael Stivick used to say, we can't have, that was the episodes about, we can't have children and bring them into this world. That was 1972. I and remember Archie Bunker. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, of course, Archie, but I always think about Michael and Gloria would yeah. not have a child in that environment. Well, uh, I had children 20 years after that. Yeah. And, um, and, but it makes sense. And I often say today, you know, I'm older. I wouldn't have my kids are of childbearing age. Well, they're not going to bear them, but they're, they're the age that yes. they would have them. And I think, I don't know. I can't see why they would want to have kids, but that's the way Michael Stivick and the writers of All in the Family were thinking back then. So things change and evolve and they've always some of the same some of the problems that are around now wealth inequality was insane back in 1900 and it then teddy roosevelt and fdr came into play and then then nixon happened so things so yeah and i think one of so at the peak of the pandemic or maybe i should say at the beginning of the pandemic um you know i'm I'm marching reagan by the way not (laughs) reagan um, March 18th, 2020, 18 chefs from around the country got on a phone call and said, something needs to happen. Nobody's speaking for us in D.C. This is a problem. We need to do something. And within a matter of days, a coalition was built and that coalition did something. And that coalition continues to do something. So when I have that sense of being overwhelmed or you think that nothing can change. Just remember that, a, you know, that, that old quote, a small group of committed citizens can get a whole hell of a lot done. And you just have to be again, courageous and willing to take the first step. And maybe you're the only person saying it. And maybe you're in that group of friends where you've got Republicans and Democrats together and everybody's bitching about everything. And you just need to say, well, guys, let's get together and do something about it. What can we do? Let's stop kvetching about the ick and start envisioning and living the future we want. I think, and I think we can see that. I mean, we've had glimmers of that over the past 15 years. Like, oh, good. Something good can happen. But, um, something good can happen every day. You just have to be willing to see it. Right. That's true. And, uh, and even, you know, in the, the pandemic was very impactful on a lot of people in a negative way. But, it forced people to open their eyes up to don't take anything for granted. You can't take anything for granted. You have to look at everything and appreciate it and make sure you're, you can't make sure on anything. 
but you can be aware of things and um, and then use that to appreciate what you do have when you're not in the midst of all of that. You know, there's that other, another way to look at that is if you feel like everything is just going to hell in a handbasket, everything's a mess, everything's a disaster, you got nothing to lose to try and change it. Mm-hmm. You know, when the pandemic ripped our economy apart at the seams, it, it particularly ripped the way restaurants do business are part of the seams and it's awful. And I'm not going to tell you that it was a positive experience. I'm going to tell you that it created an opportunity for some people, not all people to stitch their businesses back together in a way that they couldn't have before because ripping out the seams is really hard. People look at you like you're crazy, your coworkers, your colleagues, your your employees are like, why the hell are you changing this? It's all working. When you and your gut know it's not working. So when everything is completely destroyed around you, it can create an opportunity to change. And I think in many ways in our culture right now, we're all acutely aware, whether it's AI, whether it's political leadership, whether it's a dollar general moving into your community, we're all acutely aware of what's wrong. And we can put our heads down and say, oh, no, 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 nothing, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. And that crappy change is going to roll right over us. Overwhelm us, yes. Right? Or we can say, I don't want this. And I bet there's somebody else that doesn't want this. And let's let's do what we know we need to do to to be happy. I mean, at the core of all of it, it's, there's not, it sounds so Pollyanna, but happiness, love, comfort, safety. Like, that's what we all want. That's what we all want, no matter where we come from. In any, you know, some people don't necessarily want that, but most all people want happiness and comfort and love. I mean, um, yeah, and I think that's the common thread that winds through all of it. I would also say that things like the pandemic that are so challenging have given some, not all, the confidence to know that they can weather other things in life that aren't even related to their business, but that, yeah, I got through that and uh, and I've swung the bat on that. So, um, you know, I can be a better parent. I know that that's one thing that that the pandemic did. I think it brought families closer together in many ways. Uh, In some ways it tore them apart, but um, you know, there are, there are some positive things, but we, you're right. If we take a little action um, or a lot, a, a lot of action, um, we can. We, we can just can't give up. Change. Yeah, no, I don't think you. Well, what's the purpose of that? What is giving up? So, <laughs> so Erica, tell us where to find your fund. Uh, PlaytonPitchfork.com, same old address. Uh, yeah, but some people aren't aware of it. I'm guessing yeah. a couple of people who've never heard of you before. That's yeah, one of I'm the sure there are. We, yeah. Um, so. I, I will give you a couple of things. You, so to support the Platon Pitchfork Fund, just visit PlaytonPitchfork.com um, or uh, all the socials for Platon Pitchfork are still the same. So Pitchfork PDX on Instagram. Um, That's important to remember. I'm going to say that again, Pitchfork PDX, because there is a... There is a plate. Isn't there a plate and pitchfork that's not you? No, there's a pitchfork media that's not me. Okay. All right. Just to make sure um, I, I get them confused. And a little tease. There's going to be some 
fun holiday gifting opportunities for through the Plate and Pitchfork Fund. We're, uh, we're putting together a really lovely recipe collection that folks will be able to purchase for themselves or for holiday gift giving. And all of the proceeds will go to ultimately support uh, farmers in Oregon. So that's coming up just around the bend. Um, if you're interested in more political advocacy, consider becoming a member of the Independent Restaurant Coalition um, or becoming a, a supporter of the IRC. You can just sign up for our mailing lists and you'll get little um, prompts to take political action. And that's um, at independentrestaurantcoalition.com. And those are helpful because often we're not thinking of them and it's nice to get a prompt to say, oh, that's, that's what marketing is all about. Yeah, that's what marketing <laughs> is all about to remind you to buy something. So this is to remind you to do something. I would also say uh, it's important to provide perspective to go back and I don't know all of them, but like watch Food Incorporated again. If you watched that years ago, that movie and look up, there's, uh, I saw, and I don't know the names of them offhand. If you go to YouTube, there are some people putting out video, uh, you know, videos on the perils of Dollar General and have gone through a lot awesome. of what you've talked about and have s incredible statistics. And they also related to Walmart too. Be careful because there are some that are, that promote Dollar General, but there are some that will tell you exactly what they're planning on doing and what they're, why they've been successful. And those are interesting to watch too, to provide a little uh, depth, additional depth to um, this conversation today. So anything else, Erica, that I've missed? Anything else on your mind? <laughs> oh, my God. No, we'll be here for hours. There's so much on my mind. Um, I really appreciate you um, offering me the opportunity to be the, the policy nerd um, and to, to share the, the fight against Dollar General and the, the consolidation of the food industry. I think it's all really important that we, um, we find a way to not have it just be the conversation of nerds and policy wonks and really make it something that we all think about as consumers every day so that we really can change our food supply and our, our bodies and our economy and our communities and our environment for the better. Well, I appreciate you doing that. And every time I visited uh, one of your dinners, you, it gave me it, it gave me something to think about as I drove from those beautiful farms uh, away from the events every night and things that I hadn't thought of before. And you meet people who have, you know, everybody out there has a common interest. And anybody listening to this podcast cares about food. They're not listening to this podcast because they care about drag racers. So, um, <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for taking the time um, out of your day and out of your I week. I appreciate it to uh, come and chat and um, bring some things to the fore for people and for me too. You always do. Well, thank and, you. Uh, you. You make me think, you always make me think about, <laughs> at least think about being a better person. <laughs> Not even going to acknowledge that one there, Chris. <laughs> Go do something good for somebody else today. <laughs> I Listen, I really try to do that. I feel like I, you know, I'm not trying to do bad for any, I'm not trying to hurt, harm anybody on any given day. So okay. I'm going to do something good for my dog. I always feel like if I'm doing something good for him, I'm. You're doing right in the world. Positive energy in the world. He's got to go to the beach. So thank you so much, Erica. And, you uh, too. All right. Take good care. Take care. Okay. Bye.
Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right